Hello and welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm your host, Nora Santivani, and joining me today is Greg Fizeshi, Chief Euro Area Economist here at JP Morgan. Greg, how are you doing? Hi, good. Right, so we want to focus on your area today, um, and in particular, it's underperformance. Uh, the global economy has put in a decent performance this year, uh, looks to be delivering uh, trend-like growth of around 2.5%. But, you know, we have been highlighting that against this picture of resilience, there are a number of weak links in the expansion. From a sectoral perspective, we have been highlighting the weakness in manufacturing. And regionally, it's been Europe that we've been most concerned about. To put some numbers on it, in contrast to the US, where growth is running about one and a half percentage point above our estimate of potential, European growth has stalled um, and is running below potential with no clear signs of a lift evident in the latest readings. Um, Greg, so you've written a series of research pieces over the past couple of months, doing all the forensic analysis, trying to explain this weakness in broader Euro area activity. You've looked at everything from the impact of higher rates on residential construction, the curious illness of German industry. But I think the one that's been most striking for me is the case of the missing European consumer. Effectively, um, you know, European consumers seem to have gone into hibernation mode. Um, since the end of 2019, European um, consumption has stagnated, whereas US is up about 10%. So what's going on here, Greg, with the Euro area consumer? Why this um, relative underperformance? What are, what are your explanations? What's the narrative in your mind? Yeah, it's uh, not entirely clear. I mean, um, you know, if you if you take the the fact that Europe has had a much bigger energy shock than the US, then that's a very clear candidate for um, explaining the relative underperformance. Um, but if you look at um, the, the the broader household income accounts, um, we have actually had a pretty decent increase in real disposable incomes in the first half of the year. Um, uh, growing like at a three percent pace. Um, so relative to that, the stagnation or broad stagnation in consumer spending does look odd uh, because it implies that the saving rate went back up. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there's also not, I mean, there's nothing particularly clear in terms of the uh, the the income side um, that the, the sources of income are skewed towards income components that have a lower marginal. Uh, you know, propensity to consume out of, uh, you know, profit-related incomes, dividend incomes, net interest incomes, um, because there has been a, a big contribution from labour income, uh, which should be, uh, you know, benefiting most consumers. Um, I mean, certainly in Germany, a lot of the paid deals are structured in a way that people lower down on the income scale who have a, you know, higher propensity to consume out of their income, um, actually get disproportionately large pay increases, so they're, they're skewed across the, the income distribution. Um, so right. it seems to be driven by higher labour income, and that makes the stagnation mm -hmm. of consumer spending even more odd. Yeah, as you say, I mean, inflation surged, right, over 21-22, but I think the interesting thing is that households didn't really uh, draw on those excess uh, savings uh, that they, they built up to try and, you know, maintain living standards. And uh, that kind of sharply contrasts with what we saw in the U.S., for example. Um, to put some numbers on the savings rate for the U.S., the savings rate is 
now about three percentage points below its pre-pandemic level. In your area, it's actually up, right? It's up, what, like two, two and a half percentage points. So significantly higher um, than where it was uh, prior to the, to the pandemic. So if, if we put all of that together, to me, that seems to indicate there's been a turn towards caution on the part of the European household, right? This is basically reflecting more cautious behavior. Um, the other thing I picked up in your note is, um, you know, you're arguing that one of the issues is that the savings in the euro area have been mostly invested in equities and investment funds. So perhaps less sort of liquid forms of wealth. Is that an explanation in your mind that maybe not yeah, so I mean, easy to draw on? Yes, I mean, there is this argument that um, the the excess saving that was built up in nominal terms is disproportionately held by people higher up on the income scale who consume less out of that anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And those people have then invested that in, uh, in uh, investment funds and equities directly, um, suggesting as well that those, you know, those amounts of money are unlikely to be used to, to finance consumption um, mm -hmm going forward um so yeah i mean in terms of you know what you see in terms of the broader data i mean i gave up on the on on consumers using the excess saving quite a long time mm -hmm. ago um but what is surprising is that not only are they not using it but they're even building building it up even further given that the saving rate went back up in the first half of the year now, in terms of what you mentioned, which I think is important on the caution side, um, I mean, there as well, I, I, I think it's easy to make that argument, but again, I'm not entirely convinced that it, it, it fully stacks up because if you, because consumers don't just consume, they also invest, mm -hmm. you know, in residential housing. And the, the, the investment rate on the, uh, of households is actually, is, is actually above the pre-pandemic level. So there's caution in terms of consumption, but not obviously in terms of investment. Now, you know, quantitatively, the consumption side matters more than the investment side, but nevertheless, in terms of the, the, the signal you're getting from the data about are, are consumers cautious or not, um, it's not as clear cut as you might think just looking at the saving rate. Um, that, that, I see, yeah. I mean, one point we were hitting on, I think, throughout the past year is that um, consumer confidence um, was very strongly linked to inflation in the euro area, right? So I think now with inflation coming down pretty sharply, I suppose one might think there's a good chance that consumers will somehow become a bit more confident, a bit more willing to spend. Is that your view going forward from here for the European consumer? Yeah, I, I well... I mean, is it a view? Um, it is in the forecast. Um, it's more a hope, I think, at this point, given that we're still not seeing the, the kick up in in the data. But, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the the the, the confidence side is also, um, you know, a bit unclear because you you have in the consumer confidence data, you've got the the headline confidence measure, which is a weighted average of some of the sub indices within the survey. Um, but there's a labor market variable which doesn't feed into it. Um, so there's there's one question about how do consumers feel about the labor market, which is actually above has been above its long run average um, over the past year and a half as well. Um, and that doesn't go into the confidence measure. measure. So we have the same kind of uh, 
pattern as you do in the US where the Michigan survey is very weak, but the conference board measure is actually pretty firm. Um, so we have the same constellation in terms of confidence data, but very different implications in terms of actual spending. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, the, it does look like there is caution and you know consumers don't aren't, aren't using the real income gains as quickly as my, as you might suggest and and perhaps there is a high sensitivity to the inflation outturns mm -hmm. and and you know given that inflation is slowing there may just be a delay in um how quickly people actually start to feel that but when they do feel it then the spending will start to go up the, the one area that does make me hopeful is that uh, when I try to go through the income data, um, even though we have seen a, a, a slowdown in the PMI employment index, which uh, gives you less support to real income gains from here onwards, uh, from the from the you know the quantity side, but the the balance between uh, nominal wage gains and inflation. You know, it does look like it's still going to be a big positive for the next uh, two or three quarters. So, real incomes should still be going up at a at a decent clip. Um, and I, I I can't quite get myself to think that consumers won't start to re react to that. I see. Yeah. Okay. I mean, key key to this will be, of course, the labor market, as as you mentioned, and um, you know, the latest PMIs don't look great on that front, right? They're pointing to further slowing in um, employment growth. And I suppose, you know, one risk is that this consumer caution leads to pullback in hiring, right? So the question is, is that kind of dynamic already underway and could that feed on itself? Um, I guess that's not your baseline view, but I suppose it's a risk to the downside, right? Yes, it is a risk. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, it's, it's always hard, uh, hard to, to express a lot of confidence in, you know, growth picking up when your PMI has just fallen to like a 46 type level, which is obviously pretty low. So something isn't quite going well here. Um, but again, on the, on the, on the employment side as well, it's, you know, we, we do still have reports in the business surveys of high, high uh, levels of labor shortages. Um, vacancies are still high. They've been coming down, but from very, very high levels. So, I would think that the labor market is going to be quite resilient relative to whatever GDP does going forward. Okay, good. That's that's a good strong view, Greg. I like it. <laughs> um, so we're not giving up on the on the European uh, consumer just yet at this point. Um, so maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about German industry as well, or your area industry more broadly, right? So that's been a, a source of weakness um, that's been going on for a while, really, since the outbreak of the Ukraine war and. Um, I think here you wrote an interesting piece arguing that uh, the sector is actually doing uh, a bit better than appears at first sight. Um, and, you know, you make some, you know, interesting and, and, and convincing arguments in my mind for why uh, some of the weakness is perhaps more of an illusion than real. But of course, there are some real, more structural aspects of the weakness as well. So do you want to separate those out and kind of walk us through um, what we should take from the industry data in Europe, which by the looks of it has been underperforming as well. Yeah, so, so it, I mean, Germany is underperforming the euro area on IP. Um, and that, that has led to this perception of, uh, you know, 
why is Germany underperforming? Well, it's because of China or it's because of um, uh, deindustrialization. It's because German companies are particularly hit by high energy prices and are just shutting up shop, moving abroad, giving up uh, in large scale. Um, when I look at the data, it's it's not obvious to me that that's really the case. Um, I mean, I have been troubled by the high level of order backlogs for a while. Um, I mean, that really does bug me uh, because if you have a sector that is on its knees um, and is closing down and moving out, um, why are they reporting such high levels of order, order backlogs? Um, and the order backlogs data are supposed to be about orders that you still have and haven't met yet um, that haven't been cancelled and are relevant for domestic production. So if you know VW gets an order or a German car maker gets an order for a, a car that is being produced in Spain, that doesn't count towards the backlog reported in Germany itself. And even the energy intensive parts of German industry are sitting here with very, very high backlogs, um, according to the data. Um, and and then you go to the industry, you know, the, like the IP data. And one of my little pet projects is revisions. Um, I mean, yes. I first wrote this about <laughs> 10 years ago. When you look at the data, uh, German IP is, is way below the European average. But when you look in the national accounts at the value added of the manufacturing sector, pretty much in line with what other countries have done. And there's a huge gap between the German v, uh, GVA data and the IP data. Um, and the, the GVA data were first reported very weak, you know, in line with what IP currently looks like, but have been revised up massively um, over time. And this is a, a pattern that I, I see many times in the euro area that, you know, for whatever reason, the national st statistics uh, uh, offices are just a bit uh, cautious in terms of putting decent numbers down and always go in too low and then revise up over time. Yeah, so I I see the big revisions um to the to the German uh gross value added in industry, but relative to what's currently reported, do you think there's scope for further upward revisions, or are we kind of have we seen the bulk of the revisions by this point? I mean, I I would think that in terms of the GVA data, they don't feel out of line to me anymore. Um, okay, so know, they're. They because if you revise up further and you don't revise other countries, then Germany would suddenly be looking stronger than yeah. the rest. And that doesn't feel right either. Okay, good. Okay, so um, so unlikely we get a major revision from, from current levels. Um, I mean, this weakness in energy production in particular, um, I mean, part of that probably does reflect something longer lasting, right? So there's this idea that... Um, you know, there's been some closures of nuclear power stations, um, the increase in electricity imports as generation through coal and gas has become less competitive in Germany since the start of the war. So these kind of feel like longer lasting effects, right? Uh, is there reason to think that maybe some of this malaise could continue and become a bit more structural feature? Yeah, I mean, I, so... In terms of energy production itself, I, I think everything you've just said is is uh, is relevant, and um, it is possible that you know if electricity prices in general decline again, but it, it depends on on what you're using uh, to generate that electricity. 
it's possible that some of the weakness in terms of coal and gas generation in Germany could could recover somewhat. Um, but I mean, undoubtedly, the the nuclear plants have been shut down. I mean, they're not going to come back. Um, so there has been a, sec uh, a structural downshift here. But quantitatively, this is still quite a small effect if you take the I, uh, the industry sector as a whole. Um, the bigger question, I think, is in terms of the en energy intensive parts of manufacturing. So things like uh, steel, metals, chemicals, um, because there we haven't seen any recovery yet. Um, now, the government uh, announced some support measures last week um, to try and help the energy intensive parts of industry with the energy costs. That support was broadened to help all the entire manufacturing sector, but at the expense of targeting it at the energy intensive parts. Um, I, I also think that uh, the declines in wholesale gas prices and electricity prices haven't yet fully fed through to all parts of industry. So I think there is still some scope for that to improve, um, but that, that's the quantitatively the, the, the bigger issue. Um, you know, is there going to be a, a lasting shift in German industry away from the more energy intensive parts? Because that would have a, a bigger effect um, in terms of overall IP. All right. So putting everything together, Greg, let's talk about the forecast a bit, right? So you are looking for your area to avoid a slide into recession. Uh, we have growth moving back up towards 1%, right, by the middle of next year or so. Um, and then for the year as a whole next year, you're forecasting 0.6% uh, growth up from 0.5 this year. Um, relative to that, what are you what are you feeling the near-term risks are? Because arguably when you look at the PMI, it's telling us we're already in recession. Is that a reliable indicator for you? Um, how much of a signal are you taking from, from that? I know since the pandemic, we've been arguing the PMI has become a bit, bit less reliable. Um, as an indicator for where um, activity is tracking globally and in you know US and some other countries. But for your area, I think you've made the point that it's been relatively reliable um, yeah. even over the past couple of years. So taking a signal from that would make me think that we're already in recession. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the PMI and I think it does work. Um, and, you know, the GDP data sometimes can diverge from it, but over time revisions tend to close that gap. Um, so, so yeah, the, the PMI at the moment is very weak. Um, I mean, the signal is at best uh, stagnation in terms of GDP, so zero growth. Um, so yeah, the risks are clearly on the downside, um, also because the PMI went up in September, but then they, it fell again in October. So we're not seeing very clear signs of a, of a turn. At best, we're seeing some stabilization. Um, after having been very strong in April, um, so we had a big slide since April, and then last three months, um, you know, possibly some hints of stabilization. But level-wise, it's still very weak, so it's, it's lower than the forecast. Um, so yeah, risks on the downside, but I, I still can't get myself to endorse this kind of recession view. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I, it, it makes sense. I mean, based on what you're telling me about the consumer and um, everything is kind of in place for the consumer to come back to life, right? And um, if that happens, then, you know, that should be enough to avoid a recession. Um, I suppose one thing we haven't, 
talked about and we should touch on is the role of fiscal, right, in all this, because um, I guess one concern is that fiscal has been on a consolidation path in the euro area, and it looks like it's going to tighten even more next year. It has been tightening already. And by the way, that is a big, relatively big contrast to what we've seen in the US. So what's your sense about the role of fiscal policy on this? Can fiscal come in and save the day, provide some support, or is that just in the background there actually um, subtracting from growth in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think fiscal is, I mean, it's it, fiscal is, is hard to assess because we've had a lot of um, pandemic related measures that are dropping out. Then you had energy related measures, which are also dropping out. There, there are methodological questions about um, how much of that reduction in support is is real fiscal thrust as opposed to just a, a cyclical reduction in that support because the problem has gone away? Um, so you know there are there are some questions, but looking at the draft budget, there does seem to be some additional tightening penciled in for next year. Again, there's questions. Uh, Italy with the super bonus um, does the um, the tightening that's planned there is that real or is it a bit statistical? Um, but but overall, fiscal is not helping. Um, so it is on a consolidation part. Now, from a from a more medium term perspective, you might say, well, that's a, that's not a bad thing. But from a near term growth perspective, you know, it is something that is uh, that is weighing on the economy. Quantitatively, I mean, the fiscal plans are probably on something like 0.6, 0 0.7% in terms of the the tightening. Um, you can debate about what the impact that actually has on the economy. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be a, a drag of some form. All right. So I guess if we wanted to look for a silver lining in all this, it's that the, the weakness in um, European consumption is, I suppose, getting reflected in the fall in inflation, right? So I guess there's a, you know, a decent chance that inflation uh, is able to come down uh, materially, uh, it already is, right, in momentum terms where, uh, what, expect it to run about 2% this quarter. Obviously, the year-on-year -year rate will take a while to come that down to that level. Um, but I suppose this weakness in um, consumer demand and, um, you know, putting all of that together, the normalization of the supply side, puts the euro area in a pre pretty good position to deliver a almost complete disinflation, right? So we get back to the ECB's target towards latter part of next year or 2025. Um, is that your, your sense that on the inflation side, things seem to be perhaps responding to this weakness in, in demand? So therefore, there's a better chance that we get this complete inflation decline. And then that in turn would, of course, um, set the ECB up for uh, potential rate cuts, right? What's yeah. the sort of bar in your mind? Um, so we, we talked about this a bit before the call that, you know, you have your area growth um, around zero six, but that's somewhat weaker than what the, the ECB has, right? So if, if they were to see this sort of outcome for, for 24 on growth uh, and you have inflation coming down, close to target as you have in the forecast, um, you know, what does that imply for the ECB in terms of what they're able to provide in terms of support? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, if you if you take the, I mean, I think about this whole disinflation process as kind of having three phases. The first is that 
a lot of transitory things need to drop out of the data. And we are seeing that, you know, even on core, there are supply chain effects, uh, uh, energy effects in there, which which are dropping out of the numbers. Um, and in terms of core growth, uh, core inflation momentum, we have slowed from, you know, six down to three. Um, so that's already a pretty big step down. Um, the second step is that you need corporate pricing to calm down. We had last year a very big increase in unit profits, uh, so profit margins that were put on top of whatever wage and, and energy costs that companies had to pass on. Um, and that needs to, to settle down. And then the last uh, part of that is that wage growth needs to slow as well. Now, I think weak growth, whatever the reasons uh, for it, um, and you know, if you have a recovery in line with our forecast, it's still a re relatively modest recovery, um, it helps. So it does make the whole disinflation journey more, more, more likely. Um, and you know, as I said, we've already made progress in it and quite a bit of it. So, so yeah, that that sets up the ECB to uh, to eventually cut. Um, I've at the moment I've got two cuts uh, at, uh, towards the end of 2024. Um, clearly, if the economy underperforms, um, that could start earlier and could be a bit more already in 2024. Um, but yeah, confidence in in that disinflation journey is certainly going up. All right, perfect. I think we're going to have to to leave it there. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, so the view is one of subpar growth uh, continuing, but no recession. And the European consumer comes back to life a little bit, but not too much. Um, and inflation comes down close to target. So all in all, um, a soft landing scenario for the euro area. Um, all right, Greg, thanks very much for uh, for joining. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Global DataPod Research Wrap, and we look forward to continuing the conversation on the next episode. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on November 15, 2023.